Matura Dhammakijaya, Nabhadvip Mayapur Dhammakijaya, Jagannath Puri Dhammakijaya, Gangame Dhuna Devi Kijaya, Bhakti Devi Kijaya, Tulsi Maharani Kijaya, Samaveta Bhaktarinda Kijaya, Lord Brahmananda, all glories to the assembled devotees, all glories to the assembled devotees, all glories to the assembled devotees, all glories to Sri Guru and Garanga, all glories to Srila Prabhupada, and all Vishnu Krishna Prashtaya, Bhutale, Sri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami, Sri Yamani, Namaste, Sarasaki Guru. Gorbani Pachani Nivasasis and Yuan Paskatiadis, Tama Gandayam Shigur, Shigurjapatakamam, Shigur and Vaishnavamstra, Shigurpam Sadvajatam Sahagana, Raganatam becomes Samsajivam, Sadvaitam Sadvaditam, Parijana Sahita, Krishna Chaitanya Devam, Shinara, Krishna Padam Sahagana, Lavita, Shivashakam Vitamstra, Matrikapati Vistaki, Visnavatapti, Tanam Pavanega, Vaishnavanam. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya September 26, 2016 in Santa South Africa, and we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 17, Punishment and Reward of Kali, Text 34. Yasmin Harir Bhagavani Yajama Yatma Murtir Yajatam Santan That's not right. Yasmin in such sacrificial ceremonies, ceremonies. Harihi, the Supreme Lord, Lord. Bhagavan, the Personality of Godhead, Godhead. Ijamana, being worshipped, Ijatma, the soul of all worshipful deities, Murtihi, in the forms, Yajatam, those who worship, Sham, welfare, Tanoti, spreads, Kaman, desires, Amogan, invaluable, Stira Jagamanam, of all the moving and non moving, Antaha, within, Bahi, outside, Vayu, air, Eva, like, Eshaha, of all of them. Atma, spirit soul. Translation and purport by Shilipalpa. It, it is in all sacrificial ceremonies, although sometimes the demigod is worshipped, the Supreme Lord, personality of Godhead, is worshipped because he is the super soul of everyone and exists both inside and outside like the air. Thus it is he only who awards all welfare to the worshipper. Purport. It is even sometimes seen that demigods like Indra and Chandra are worshipped and offered sacrificial rewards. Yet the rewards of all such sacrifices are awarded to the worshipper by the Supreme Lord, and it is the Lord only who can offer all welfare to the worshipper. The demigods, although worshipped, cannot do anything without the sanction of the Lord, because the Lord is the supersoul of everyone, both moving and non-moving. In the Bhagavad Gita 9.23, the Lord himself confirms this in the following sloka. Ye pyanya devata bhakta yajjante shradhav Shradhavan Vita, Tepi Mam Eva Yajjavid Hipurvakam. Whatever man may sacrifice to other gods, O son of Kunti, is really meant for me alone, but is offered without true understanding. Prabhupada would quote this Avidi Purvakam a lot. That the worshippers of the demigods, they don't know. Avidi, they don't really have intelligence. The fact is that the Supreme Lord is one without a second. There is no God other than the Lord Himself. Thus the Supreme Lord is eternally transcendental to the material creation. But there are many who worship the demigods like the sun, the moon, and Indra who are only material representatives of the Supreme Lord. These demigods are indirect, qualitative representatives of the Supreme Lord. A learned scholar or devotee, however, knows who is who. Therefore he directly worships the Supreme Lord and is not diverted by the material qualitative representations. Those who are not so learned worship such qualitative material representations, but their worship is unceremonious because it is irregular. It's interesting, he's using the word unceremonious. Yasmin Harir Bhagavan Iyajama 
Ijyatma murti yajjatam samtanoti kaman amogham stira jangamanam antarbahir vayu ivaishya atma. In all sacrificial ceremonies, although sometimes a demigod is worshipped, the Supreme Lord, personality of Godhead, is worshipped because he is the super soul of everyone and exists both inside and outside like the air. Thus it is he only who awards all welfare to the worshipper. So in the previous verse we were told that we should perform sacrifices. And so here it may be asked, sacrifices for whom? Who is the highest object of sacrifice? Because in one sense everyone is sacrificing. When Maharaj Prickett tells uh, the representative of Kali, he says, uh, you can't stay where there are sacrifices. Of course, he specifically says sacrifices to the Supreme Lord. He says, the Yageshwaram, the controller of all sacrifices. But that may be unclear. You cannot stay where there are sacrifices to the controller of all sacrifices. Well, well, who is that? Who is that person? Just like Atri Muni, he was standing on one leg doing yoga and calling, please may the Lord of the universe come and be my son. And so Lord Vishnu wasn't sure if he was talking to him. Lord Brahma wasn't sure if he was talking to him. And Shiva wasn't sure if he was talking to him. Just like sometimes among the devotees, someone says, hey, Prabhu, and five people turn around. Right? So it was like that. You know. May the Lord of the universe come. Who, who are you calling? And so it, there might have been some confusion on the part of Kali. Okay, I can't stay where there's sacrifices to the Lord of sacrifice. Well, who is the Lord of sacrifice? So here it's explained that people may sacrifice in all different places, but the Lord of sacrifice is the one God. Now, indeed, we're all sacrificing. We can't live without sacrifice. That's not possible. In the mode of ignorance, particularly, people try to live without sacrifice. They try to get some benefit without paying a price. Basically, we call that stealing. But there's many indirect ways of stealing. Just like nowadays, people are growing crops by pouring chemicals into the earth instead of taking care of the earth. Right? You understand? They're doing that with the animals, too, the meat-eaters who are slaughtering the animals. Instead of waiting, letting the animal live its natural life, they pump it full of chemicals so it artificially matures very quickly. And therefore, they can, you know, kill the animal in one half of the time. They're, they're, in other words, they're trying to get some benefit without doing some sacrifice. Do you understand? This is the general mood in the world. You know, let me have a sexual relationship without taking care of, of my spouse without taking care of the children. Let me earn my money without doing it honestly. Let me have some sneaky way of, of earning my money. Somehow to get some benefit without sacrifice. Let me have you know fast food without cooking. This has become very common. People don't know how to cook. I remember one time we went into a, a grocery store and I asked <coughs> the woman who worked there, where are the spices? And she looked at me, the what? <laughs> You know, spices. Where, where's the spices? So she took me to an aisle where there was ketchup and mustard. <laughs> and she was at least in her 20s. And I said, I guess you don't cook, do you? She says, no. So people want food without cooking, just, you know, some chemical food. They want to produce food without actually taking care of the earth. People just, they want money without working. Honestly, they want some get-rich-quick scheme, right? Or there's a... There's calculation that practically all of us are getting some of our goods and services some way indirectly from people who are not being paid properly, who are being worked almost as slaves in the world. And we're like, oh, okay, as long as I have my phone and as long as I have my clothes and I don't really care if somebody is living in a horrible condition in order for me to have these things. So this is the general mode of ignorance. In the mode of passion, people are willing to sacrifice for what they get. They're willing to work hard and sacrifice and be honest, uh, but they're not willing to sacrifice their ego. Remember yesterday we were saying the essence of all sacrifice is truthfulness. So those in the mode of passion, they're willing to sacrifice their time, they're willing to sacrifice their wealth, they're willing to sacrifice their energy and their intelligence and so forth. But they're doing it for the sake of their ego rather than a sacrifice of their ego. They want everyone to say, you've given so much. And those in the mode of goodness, they're willing to sacrifice, at least to some extent, their ego. What the people in the mode of goodness want to do is they want to be forgiving and, and kind and equipoised and, and so much. 
and so forth, and sacrifice their defending themselves. Uh, but even those in the mode of ignorance are sacrificing, isn't it? Right? If you want to cook without, if you want to eat without cooking, and so you buy fast food, what do you end up sacrificing? Your health. You're sacrificing your health. If you want to grow food without taking care of the planet, what do you end up sacrificing? Hmm? The planet. <laughs> Not only do you sacrifice your health, you sacrifice the whole health of the planet. Right? People wanting to have sex without marriage, without children, they sacrifice peace in society. The whole society becomes chaotic. So they end up sacrificing anyway. And it's a much greater sacrifice. Just like you know, if I spend 20 rand to buy something and I've earned that 20 rand, that's a much less of a sacrifice than if I steal the thing and I have to go to jail for a month. You know, how long did it take me to earn the 20 rand? Maybe a, an hour or two hours, right? That's, it's not nearly as much time as sacrifice as going to jail. So people in the mode of ignorance are sacrificing far more. Actually, when you go to passion, you're sacrificing less. When you go to goodness, you're actually sacrificing even less. And in bhakti, you don't feel like you're sacrificing at all. Krishna explains this in Bhagavad Gita, chapter 4, text 24. He says, everything merges into transcendence. You don't see the difference between the sacrifice and the result. You know, just like we've had experience, when you're cooking for Krishna, you can enjoy it as much as when you're eating. Isn't it? In fact, if you're really absorbed in cooking for Krishna, even if you distribute all the prasadam and there's nothing left for you, often you feel very satisfied. So in there, there, there is no sacrifice, really. It all merges into, into transcendence. It's all bliss. Or it's all sacrifice and it's all bliss. There's no difficulty. So every, my point is everyone has to engage in some sort of sacrifice. There's no way to avoid it. And then the question becomes... For whom is one sacrifice? What is the object of one sacrifice? So people in the mode of ignorance, what's their object of sacrifice? Their own senses. Their own senses and to some extent their mind. Uh, People in the mode of passion, who are they sacrificing? They're definitely their ego in their mind. And who else? Family, particularly for family. People in the mode of passion especially sacrifice for family and country. Family, country, humanity, or the dolphins. or And they want to be known as a big charitable person. What about people in the mode of goodness? God. Usually impersonal God. Usually a Brahmin God, or sometimes the demigods. People in the mode of passion, also they want to sacrifice for big important people. They'll sacrifice for big important politicians or some big person in their family or uh, you know, people who are also interested in their ego. Yes? So the sacrifice to the demigods is considered usually in the mode of goodness. But on the Isha Upanishad, it says, those who worship the demigods go to the darkest region of ignorance and it says still more so to the worshippers of the impersonal absolute so the Ishopanishad has a surprising verse that seems to say everything backwards now of course it's not that the worshippers of demigods or the worshippers of the Brahman are going to the lower planets or becoming animals but they are increasing their ignorance they're, they're not really elevating themselves especially the worshippers of the demigods because they're simply looking for just a higher grade of material sense gratification so they're not getting out of the main problem. So here Prabhupada makes the point that ultimately only God is giving all the results. I mean, even if you're a really low-grade person and you're living by stealing and lying and cheating, still it's only God giving you the results. Without Krishna's sanction, you can't get the results. Prabhupada said, the householder is praying, please protect my house, and the thief is praying, please give me a house I can steal from. And Prabhupada said, God is perplexed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, but even the thief has to get the grace of God, isn't it? So no matter who you're sacrificing for, even if you're just sacrificing for your senses, ultimately Krishna is the master of the senses, and there are demigods who control each of the senses, and Krishna has to reward. Otherwise, it's not possible. I'm sure all of us have gotten sick such that we couldn't enjoy any of our senses, right? We had that experience. We couldn't taste anything. We couldn't smell anything. Maybe our ears were blocked up. We couldn't hear properly. 
We maybe couldn't think properly because we had a fever. We couldn't do anything. Right? We may have had all these plans. You know, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and then the body goes... And you can't do anything. Right? And that can happen to people on a, on a long-term basis. They can lose their leg, they can lose their arm. We were just in, in Cape Town, one of the devotees there. I didn't notice it right away, but he sat down, take Prasadam with us, and I realized that all he had was a thumb on his right hand. And I said, were you born that way? He said, no, I got in a motorcycle accident. And I lost my, my whole... My, my whole he, he just had like the bottom part of his hand with his thumb. I lost all my fingers and my hand. So Krishna can take away, right, in a disease, in an accident, whatever. Uh, and so he's really the one giving us the results, not anybody else. And Prabhupada often gives the example in a government. You know, you, you apparently are getting some result from the lower level clerk, but actually you're getting the result from the person on the top. Or in a university, we were talking last night about a university. So your professor is giving you the grades, but ultimately your diploma is given by the dean of the college. It's not, it's not really given by the lower persons, although the dean of the college will give you your diploma on the recommendation of the lower persons. So lower person said, this person is good, or in a, in a job, you know, it's really the, the president of the company or the chairman of the board who's paying your salary ultimately. But they may do it at the recommendation of your immediate supervisor. Now, there's a question as to, is there one God or many gods? This is a question. I think with our intelligence, we can understand there must be some intelligence behind the world, isn't it? I I don't think that takes all that much intelligence. I, I really can't fathom why people are atheists on a logical basis. I can understand emotionally why they're atheists, but not logically. So just like if somebody made that cushion, which is a very simple thing, probably just has a piece of foam inside of it and fabric on the outside. But somebody had to make it, yes? And that somebody had to be human. I don't think even an intelligent chimpanzee, you know, or a dolphin or could have made that. And it would have had to be made by at least a three- or four-year-old child. I don't think a one- or two-year-old child could have made it. At least three or four years old. Probably older than that. And that's very, very, very simple. So what to speak of those flowers, which are extremely complex, or one cell in our body. So there has to be some intelligence behind the creation. But then there's a question. Is it one intelligence or many? I mean, in building this building, this building is a result of intelligence, but probably not only one. There are probably many people involved, and probably one person took care of the electricity, one person took care of the plumbing, right? One person made the plans, one person did the drywall. So in many societies, they have worshipped many gods. It's quite common in human societies. So, okay, well, we're going to worship the god of the rain and the god of the sun and the god of the moon and the god of the rivers and the god of the mountains. So what's our logical argument that there is one god? This is given in the Bhagavatam. And anybody know in what canto there's a discussion about whether there's one god or many gods? Is the Asama Urda, like that God, that name of God, that Asama Urda. Which that, means? Uh, that he has no equal. That he has no he equal. Has no okay, but that's just... A name. Yes. Okay. That's not a logical argument. Good name, but... <laughs> that's just, if you define God as that being for which there is no equal or greater, if that's how you define God... But that begs the question. That doesn't really answer the question. That's what we call in logic victory by definition. I know the answer, but I don't know the canto. You don't know the canto. Okay, it's the sixth canto. And the answer is that if there were more than one God, then they would be fighting all the time. Yeah, they, they would have different opinions. And this was from a discussion with, between the Yamadudas and Yamaraj. So as you know, the Yamadudas went to take the subtle body of Ajamila. And from their perspective, he really messed up his life. He was born a Brahmana, nice parents, nice wife, and he didn't take care of his parents when they were old. He left his wife 
and he consorted with an unchaste woman, a prostitute, had ten children by her. And because he had given up his caste, he no longer could have the occupation as a brahmana, but he wasn't trained for any other occupation, so he became a criminal. He was basically a thief and a con man. So he lived his life as a thief and a con man, neglected his, his wife, neglected his parents. That from the point of view of the Yamadutas, he was fit to be punished by Yamaraj. But then there was a difficulty. When they went to take him, they were stopped by the Vishnu Judas, who said, this is not a sinful person at all. And you can't take him to Yamaraj. He's not destined to be punished at all. Well, why is that? Well, as he was dying, he said Narayana one time. And that wiped out all of his sins. And therefore, you can't take him. In fact, he's not going to die now. We're going to let him keep living and finish his bhakti. And the Vishnu Dudas were more powerful than the Yamadudas. And the Yamadudas weren't able to stand against them. They had a whole philosophical argument. But they weren't able to prevail. And they went back to Yamaraj and they said, what's going on? They said, we thought that you were God. We thought that you were in charge. But your order has been overruled by somebody. We don't know who. And we don't understand how there could be two gods. How could there be you and another god? Because if there is, we have this problem that we think this man should be punished. Then this other god, who we didn't see, the ruler of these people, felt that this person should not be punished. And, and they said, if there's more than one god, then there'll be disagreement. And in fact, we see this in our, our ordinary life, right? Somebody does something wrong, and some of us say, well, that person should be punished. No, he shouldn't be punished. And the Amaruta said, then people would be, you know, neither punished nor rewarded, or both punished and rewarded. There would be chaos. And therefore we see in, in human endeavors, there's a leader. So many people helped to build the building, but there was one person in charge. There was one person who had the ultimate say, right? Yes? Otherwise there's chaos. Even if you have a committee, there's a chair of the committee. This idea that everybody can have an equal say all the time, that only works when everybody agrees. One devotee wrote a letter to Prabhupada. He said, there's differences of opinion among the devotees, and this is due to impersonalism. Prabhupada said, no, this is due to personalism. <laughs> he said, the fact that we are different individuals means we have a different opinion. He said, if, there, if we don't have a different opinion on things, what does it mean that we're an individual? So there has to be one ultimate person who says, this is my opinion. Yes. So this is a logical reason why there's one God. So what happens when we worship something other than God, when we sacrifice for something other than God, which Prabhupada calls here indirect. He says it's indirect, you're worshiping a qualitative representative. I found that interesting because every jiva has the qualities of God. So every jiva, in one sense, can represent God. Yes? Right? <coughs> whether it's your, your husband or your father or whether it's Indra, they're all equal souls. And they all have the qualities of God to a minute degree. But when we worship these people, and it doesn't necessarily mean worship, although the Sanskrit here is ijya, which means to worship. It literally means worship. But if we sacrifice or we revere somebody other than God. What is the result? So the long-term result, of course, is that we take birth again. We go to the planets of the people that we worshipped or we sacrificed for, or we again have a life with those people because we're absorbing our mind in those people. Uh, the immediate result is that we're very frustrated because we're sacrificing and worshipping someone who's not able to reciprocate with us as we desire. If we give all of our heart to another jiva as if, they, as if they were God, but that jiva is not God, we are going to be dissatisfied. It's like if you tried to use your phone to power the room. It, it just wouldn't work. You know, the phone has a little battery. It, it's not that it, it has electricity. The electricity in the phone is of the same quality, but the, the quantity is very minute. Now, if you take an appliance and you plug it in, then you might be able to use that appliance if it's channeling the, the energy from the powerhouse. But in and of itself, it can't do anything. So our frustration in life 
is due at least in part to this problem, that we expect someone else to play the role of Krishna for us. You know, this is what we're talking about in Manishiksha, about giving up this identity of being a good this or a good that. If a person thinks, well, you know, I I am a good husband, I'm going to be a good husband, and if I'm a good husband and I sacrifice for my wife, then I will be completely satisfied. Or if I'm a good parent and I sacrifice for my children, I'll be completely satisfied. Or higher than that, you know, I'm a good religionist and I sacrifice for the sun god or the moon god, then I'll be satisfied. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work because those jivas cannot fully satisfy us. They're not capable of doing it. Even if they are well-intentioned, they can't do it. And many times they're not even well-intentioned, isn't it? Many times the other jivas are just trying to satisfy themselves, not trying to satisfy us. But even if they're trying to satisfy us, they can't do it. I was speaking to one devotee in Europe who was taking care of her elderly mother, who's also a devotee. And she was saying the situation was very tense because her mother was always expecting her to do everything for her. And I said, your mother's expecting you to be Krishna. She's expecting you to fulfill all of her needs and all of her desires. I said, but you're not Krishna. I said, so stop trying to be Krishna for your mother. Just try to please Krishna. Don't try to be Krishna. So this having the wrong object of sacrifice is either we think someone else is going to be Krishna for me or I'm going to be Krishna for them. And the result is just frustration and disappointment and bitterness and grief. And we often blame the other person or we blame ourselves or both. I guess I just wasn't a good daughter. I guess there's something wrong with my father. But that's, that's not true. That, that wasn't the problem. The problem was thinking this person is the object of sacrifice. And Krishna is saying in the Bhagavad Gita, look, I'm the one giving you the sacrifice. I'm the one giving you the results. Right? Lord Kapiladev says even about women, he says, you know, if you think your husband is a result of your money and your house and your children, then your husband is like the hunter calling the deer to its death. Everything he says is given by me. So what's the result if we actually worship the proper object and we sacrifice for the proper object? Then we do become fully satisfied. And we become fully satisfied even if our sacrifice and worship is very materially insignificant. Krishna says, Patram pushpam palam trayam yome bhakti Tadaham bhakti paritam ashrami You just give Krishna some water. You just say Narayana one time at the end of your life, and Krishna is pleased. Whereas when we have the indirect object, you can sacrifice your whole life and they're not fully pleased. Isn't it a fact? You can work work so hard for another jiva and give up so much, make such an endeavor, and they're not fully satisfied. And with Krishna, we give him a flower. A leaf. A cup of water. You know, some devotees, most devotees on their altar, they have little cups of water, right? I don't remember where I was. Some devotee's house, and they had very small deities, like really, really tiny. You seen like maybe those little juggernaut deities? I don't remember exactly, but it was really, really tiny deities. And so their cups of water were, were like, the, the whole cup wasn't bigger than the fingernail on my smallest finger here. I mean, the, it was... I don't know, maybe it held like a milliliter of water in there. One drop, like if you had an eyedropper, you could put one drop of water in this little teeny, teeny tiny cup. And they're offering that to Krishna, and Krishna's happy. You know, find another jiva who's going to be happy like that. You try to make your wife happy with, you know, one drop of water out of an eyedropper. She's, well, where's my house? <laughs> Yeah, but Krishna is satisfied with a little bhakti. He was satisfied with Radhura's banana peels. Not that we should intentionally offer banana peels. But the point is that Krishna is satisfied just with, with some affection. Uh, my godbrother, Gopavinda Prabhu, who's Tarni's maternal grandfather, says he realized this once when one of his young sons, uh, I think he was five or six at the time, brought him a stick. Here, Daddy, here's a stick. And although the stick had no value whatsoever, because it was being offered with affection, his heart just melted. And so when we offer to the proper object, we can offer something insignificant. In fact, if we were to offer everything we have, it would still be very insignificant. 
isn't it? If we sacrificed everything, what is the, the value to Krishna of that in, in an objective sense? And then Krishna gives everything. Krishna gives himself, as I like to say. You know, if we give Krishna everything and he gives us everything, who gets more? You know, Krishna gives himself to the devotee. Prabhupada says Krishna puts himself in the hand of the devotee. Whereas when we sacrifice to some jiva separately from Krishna, we can give everything. And, and even if they try to give everything in return, it's not enough. As the Thomas Merton, the uh, famous Christian monk who wrote an appreciation of Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita, as he said, we all have a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. It can't be filled by another jiva. It can't be filled by just some sense object. It can't be filled by just some material activity. So, of course, people may object, well, if I only worship God, what will happen to everything else? And therefore, you have the uh, Kanista Adhikari, as described in the 11th Canto, that, well, okay, I'll sacrifice for God, but just on Sunday, depending on your religion, just on Friday or just on Saturday. I'll have my, my weekly time. Or even if you have several times a day, like you have Jews who pray three times a day, Hindus who pray three times a day, Muslims who pay five times a day. Okay, that time I'll sacrifice for God. But the rest of the time, I'll give to something else. I think of it like you have, you know, some pie. Okay, this piece is for God. This piece is for my family. This piece is for my entertainment. This is for my hobbies. This is for my career. Right? Okay, I'll sacrifice for God. Fine, no, no problem. But... I've got to take care of everything else, too. I mean, I don't want to be a fanatic. And we find that, in fact, when, when we who've come to Krishna consciousness, that we often got a resistance from our families, even if our families were religious. Even I've seen with the Indians, they get resistance from their Hindu families. They can even get resistance from their Vaishnava families. We've seen this. Because the family is saying, you know, religion is fine. It, it's fine. We're, we're, we, we want you to be religious. But not so much. You have balance. And devotees ask me this all the time. How do I balance my material and spiritual life? That's not the right question. I mean, they're often talking about time management. That's another thing. But that's not the right question. It's not that you should have, you know, this part for me, this part for my family, this part for Krishna. What Krishna is asking for is no less than totality. Sarva dharma pricha jama mekam sharnamucha. Don't have any other dharma. Don't have any other identity. Sarva Don't have any other identity at all. Simply you're sacrificing only for Krishna. Will you become neglectful? No, because as soon as you sacrifice for Krishna, Krishna will say, hey, I have some service for you to do. Oh, what's that service? Will you take care of this person? You can call him your husband, okay? Take care of him. Take care of him so he feels that you're taking care of him like he's your husband. Will you do that for me? Yes, Krishna. And, and take care of this person. And, and this person thinks that they're your mother. So take care of them and let them think you're taking care of them like a mother. Will you do that for me? Yes, Krishna. But we're doing it for Krishna. And why does Krishna generally ask his surrendered devotees to act like that, to act as if they were a good son and a good father and a good, you know, whatever? Because yad yad us. Otherwise, the people in the world who are still wrapped up in ordinary dharma and are still wrapped up in the wrong object of sacrifice will look at the behavior of, of people who are fully devoted to the Lord and think that the result of surrender is the means of surrender. You follow? The result of fully surrendering to Krishna is you don't have any debts to anybody. You don't owe anybody anything. Krishna says, when you fully surrender to Krishna, you no longer have any duty to perform whatsoever. But he also says you have no reason to give up your duties. You have no reason to do them. You have no reason to give them up. You're not attached or averse. But you could walk away from them. But those who are not yet fully surrendered will think, oh, the way I become enlightened is to give up all my duties in the world. It doesn't work like that. You know, a healthy person may be able to eat all kinds of food, but a sick person doesn't become healthy by eating all kinds of food. It doesn't work like that. They have to take medicine. 
So if someone is really attached, you know, I am a this, I am a that, I am a this, I am a that, then they have to follow the laws of Dharma. They have to follow Varnashram. Okay, you think you're such for your work like this. Okay, you think you're married with a family, work like this. You think you're a student, work like this. You think you're a business person, work like this. And so the devotees set this example. But that's not their mood. Their mood is completely different. Of course, the devotees who surrender to Krishna as the only object love everyone. They're not cold-hearted. So even if at some point they walk away from their duties, as Krishna says, they're not doing it out of aversion or out of cold-heartedness, but simply out of obedience to Krishna. If Krishna says, okay, okay, Pandavas, now it's time to give up the kingdom and take sannyas. Okay, Krishna. Immediately. Now it's time to take care of the kingdom. Take care of your family. Okay, Krishna. Now it's time to leave. Okay, Krishna. And they're completely and fully satisfied with all of their desires, completely fully satisfied. So at least we should be practicing as sadhana, as sadhakas, as sadhana bhaktas. We should be practicing that Krishna is my only object of sacrifice. And whenever we feel disturbed with others, it's hard to go through a whole day without feeling disturbed with somebody, isn't it? Whenever we feel disturbed with others, at least we should know with our intelligence, if I am disturbed with others, it's either because I'm trying to be their object of sacrifice or I'm trying to make them my object of sacrifice. I'm thinking they're Krishna, or I'm thinking I'm their Krishna. And it just doesn't work. And that's the problem. The problem is not exactly this other person, or myself. It's not that I'm, that I'm wrong, I'm bad, or that they're wrong and they're bad. I'm just, you know, trying to light my, my room with a, t- with a phone. And it's just foolish, and I should go to the real powerhouse. So... I think it's time to stop. We have a couple minutes if anyone has questions or comments. Yes? Um, with regards to investing one's real self mm. in acts of sacrifice, like mm. yesterday we were speaking about mm. this, and so now today we're speaking about that the object. object of sacrifice. So one yeah, sort of gives himself to that degree of how they feel like uh, the attraction of the object. Mm. So like, okay, if I'm attracted to this jiva, then I'll give so much. Yes. So how does one... And then the question uh, was like, is it necessary to actually know about Krishna-like knowledge? To what extent does knowledge play a role? Information knowledge. Information knowledge. So like, how does one keep one's attraction steady? For most of us, without some information kind of knowledge it'll be very difficult for us to become attracted to Krishna. Generally. I mean, like Prabhupada told my father in 1974, that the purpose of religion is to know God and to love him. So if you don't know anything about God, even on an information level, it's going to be a little difficult to know to love him. But ultimately, the kind of knowledge we want to have of God is not information knowledge, it's realized knowledge. Because I, I, I love people not based on information knowledge, but based on experiential knowledge. I don't love people just because of some theoretical knowledge about them. You know, when, uh, when you're taught in school to write narratives, to write stories, you're always taught to show rather than tell, right? Do you remember that? Remember your teacher saying that to you? Don't say, Susie walked in the room, she was angry. You say, Susie walked in the room, she slammed the door, she threw her handbag on the table, and she plopped into the chair with a loud noise. And then you can assume that she's upset or she's angry or something like that without saying Susie's upset. So, and if you just write a story like that, Susie is angry. There's, there's no emotional involvement on the part of the reader. It doesn't, doesn't work. But if you show, then the reader starts becoming attached. So just informational knowledge about Krishna is not sufficient. And that's not going to awaken our attachment to Krishna. We have to have experiential knowledge. We have to actually experience Krishna. Okay, how are we going to experience Krishna? So the main way that we experience Krishna is through the association of other people who are experiencing Krishna. That's, that's the main way. And this is not only true at the beginning level, but this is true at the highest levels of bhakti. So at the highest levels of bhakti, the devotee serves not only Krishna as the vishaya, but the devotee as the ashraya. So this is in the category of 
Uh, there's five components of rasa. One of them is called vibhava. And vibhava is the stimulus. What causes you to have attraction? Because that's kind of what you're talking about, right? What causes us to have attraction for Krishna? Because, as you said, I'm going to sacrifice for someone or something. Sometimes we sacrifice for a thing also. For, for whom, generally for whom, or for which we have some attraction. So vibhava is what brings out our attraction. And vibhava is divided into two main categories, alambana and udipan. Alambana is the support and udipan is called the stimulus. So then in the alambana, we should really show this on a chart. And the support is two-branched. The, she- the, the, the object of attraction and the shelter of that attraction. So I can give you a very simple material example. Um, this is an example I give a lot. So I was one time waiting for a plane, and by the gate there was a family with a little child, little girl, maybe two, three years old. I know one, one of my photographer friends says, two years old is the summit of cuteness. <laughs> he said, well, you never get as cute as you are when you're two. So this kid was probably around two. And she was just... An, an extremely attractive child, a very, very, very attractive child, and she was dressed up in some kind of costume, I don't know, some kind of princess or fairy costume or something like that. So she was doubly cute, and then her parents were dealing with her with a lot of affection. There, there was just so much affection between the mother and father and this child, and the vast majority, if not all, of the other people waiting for this plane were also pulled into this scene that was happening as we were waiting to board between the parents and the child. And, and you could see in people's faces that they also had some parental mood. What did you say to me before the last line that you could tell there was a child boarding? You said, you said, I, you said Grandma, I can tell there's a child boarding because the stewardess was saying, got a higher oh, yeah, 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 yeah. pitch voice. How are you doing today? You know, we, we get both men and women. We raise our voice when we when we, we get this higher pitch voice when we talk to children. So everybody was doing that. Everybody, oh hi, what's your name? You know. So what what was happening there? We had a natural feeling of attraction. Why? Okay, first of all, there was the vishaya. The vishaya was the little girl. She was the object of attraction. Then there was the ashraya. The ashraya were her mother and father. Her mother and father were the repository of parental affection. And seeing and feeling their affection stimulated our affection. Then there were udipans. Udipans would be, you know, her cute little face with the big eyes and, you know, her cute hair and her cute costume and how she was running in, in a, you know, that kind of way that little children run and she was smiling. Those were the udipans. So this is how it works with Krishna. So Krishna is the Vishaya, he is the object. The Ashraya are the devotees who love Krishna. And in the beginning of our Krishna consciousness, that's very general. Our spiritual master, the senior devotees we know, the senior devotees we read about. As we advance in Krishna consciousness, it becomes particular devotees. You know, the gopis, or the people in parental mood, or Krishna's friends, or Krishna's servants, depending on how our mood starts to awaken. And then the Udipans are like Krishna's clothing, Krishna's flute, Krishna's smile, Krishna's activities, Krishna's relationships with his devotees, those become the Udipans. So if we don't expose ourselves to all of that vibhav, then our attraction for Krishna will not awaken. And we want to know Krishna like that. You know, all of us had some sense of knowing this little girl, although I didn't even know her name. I didn't have informational knowledge about this child at all. I have no idea what her name is. I don't know what country she's from. Nothing like that. But we all had a sense of knowing her through the parents and through their feelings to her. So that's really, we're looking for experiential knowledge. Informational knowledge is helpful at the beginning because it builds our intellectual faith. And our intellectual faith is our main impetus in the beginning of spiritual life. But that's not enough. Just intellectual faith is not enough. It's okay in the beginning, but we need to have our own experiences in Christian consciousness. It's absolutely essential. Yes. Hi, Krishna. Um, from the 
understanding of this process, the, it is said that we should not serve and worship. Well, the object of worship is not the Jiva, it is Krishna. Correct. So, in our devotee community, we have spouses, we have wonderful senior advanced devotees. We may become attached to and want to serve. So, what is the, how can we balance that knowing that we know and understand that, yes, Krishna is the object of... Have them be the ashraya, but don't ever have them be the vishaya. Don't ever, ever think that another jiva is the vishaya, is the enjoyer. But yes, we worship the devotees, especially the great devotees, even some of the demigods, as the ashraya. In fact, without that, we cannot become attached to the vishaya. And, and, and this is such a good point, because, I don't know how to say this, but it has to be said, many times what we do is we take the same materialistic idea of I'm going to serve my family, I'm going to serve my friends, I'm going to serve my race, I'm going to serve my nation, I'm going to serve the members of my own religion. And we just take that and do a copy-paste. Okay, now I'm going to serve the devotees and I'm going to serve my spiritual society, I'm going to serve my local temple community, I'm going to serve my international ISKCON community. But we're doing it as if there are friends, and as if we're serving people out in the world. But with higher expectations. So, as materialists, we were serving our husband, our wife, our mother, our father, our community, blah, blah, blah. Now I'm doing the same thing in Krishna consciousness, except I'm expecting that because they're a devotee, they're going to fully satisfy me. Completely. And they're going to be perfect. And guess what? They can't and they aren't. And so then we have this angst and bitterness and anger. Only Krishna. But only Krishna means Krishna with his devotees. But only Krishna is the object. Only Krishna is the object. But when you have only Krishna as the object, that's through the ashraya of the devotees. So you have this song like Sri Rupa Manjari Pada which is written to Rupa Manjari with, with the love that we think of as for Krishna. If I can't see you for a moment, I feel like I'm bitten by a snake. I mean, it's intense. Try reading Sri Rupa Manjari Pada. The love between one devotee and another. It, it's, it's intense. When you love Krishna that much, then you love everyone that much. But you have to love Krishna only, and then you love everybody as much as you love Krishna. That's the mystery. And you can't love Krishna without the devotees. That's not possible. But never, ever, 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 ever love anyone or anything separately from Krishna. That's a catastrophe. It's just a catastrophe. Even if you love gurus separately from Krishna. I mean, a lot of these demigods are also gurus. Yes? Lord Shiva's guru, he's the head of a sampradaya. You can worship Shiva as guru, but not separately. As soon as you worship separately, as soon as you as soon as you deal with another jiva, as if that jiva is going to satisfy your desires. As soon as you're trying to please that jiva independently of trying to please Krishna. And how can you tell? You can tell when that jiva's happiness or unhappiness is devastating to you and controls you. And when you get angry at that jiva when they're not satisfied with you. Or when you get angry at that jiva when you have failed to satisfy them, however you want to look at it. I've done all this for you and you're still not happy with me. I've done all this for who? Who did you do it for? You understand? If I've done all this for Krishna, then if you're satisfied with me or not satisfied with me, I'm still peaceful. Of course, if I'm trying to please Krishna... Krishna is going to be pleased if I deal with you in a way that's likely to satisfy you. Because that's my service. Does that make sense? But it's not the result of whether I satisfy you or not that makes me happy. I'm not looking for that kind of a result. I can't control that. And that's not the, the purpose. That's a fruitive thing. Fruit of thing is I'm the controller and I'm working for a particular result and if I get that result I will be happy. And that result could be my wife loves me as much as 
I make a lot of money. You, you follow? Both of that is a fruit of resolve. I can't control whether or not my husband likes me or my wife likes me or my kid likes me or my boss likes me. I have no control over that. They might or they might not. I might do every single thing they say would make them happy and they're still not happy. Yes? For whatever reasons. But I can always make Krishna happy. That I can do. I can always, always, always make Krishna happy. So my goal is to make Krishna happy. And I make Krishna happy by serving his devotees. And I get to know Krishna through his devotees. And I have great love for the devotees. But think of this for a minute. This may help explain it also. When you're satisfying Krishna, you're connected with the infinite, and therefore you're full of infinite happiness. Okay? Does that make sense to everybody? If, if we're full of infinite happiness, then when I love others, am I taking or giving? Giving. Giving. If I'm not first connected with Krishna, then I feel mostly empty. Then when I'm dealing with others, can I just give? No. I can give a little bit, but I'm always waiting to see what I get back because I'm empty. So if you love Krishna first, and you connect it with Krishna, and you're full of infinite love, then you can infinitely love everyone, no matter how they reciprocate with you. If you don't love Krishna first, if you try to love independently, then you're loving from a platform of emptiness, more or less. And then it's always some kind of a bargain. I'll give to you, but what are you going to give to me? And I've given too much. And you know, and all this, this problem. Is that alright? But I see it can be worse with the devotees. You know, we, we, we can exacerbate the general problem that materialists have with this, which is like the problem of materialistic life, we can make it worse if we just do a copy-paste onto devotional service. You know, somehow I think, if I serve my devotee husband, he will fulfill all of my desires. No, he's not God. And even if you serve your guru as if he's separate from Krishna, if you think your guru's you know, going to be Janaka Janani Daita Tanai Prabhu Patitu Sargamar. You think my guru is going to be my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, my lover, my son, my. He can't do that. He's going to go, whoa, get away from me. Right? He can't. He's not God. We can experience God through the devotees, but we can't. It's not that the devotee is God. Yes. Very important. Okay. I'm sorry, we started late, we ended late. Thank you for your good